Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath, and my guest this week is Liz Wiseman, a former very senior executive at Oracle uh, for many of its uh, growth years, I guess I would say, uh, but more recently has broken out, runs her own company, um, had a fantastic best-selling book called Multipliers, which is a Bible for many of the people that I work with, and has a brand new book called Impact Players, which is chock-a-block full of great great thinking, great ideas. And uh, one of the things that fascinated me in reading the book was the observation, Liz, that one of your characters makes early in the book, which is you can't multiply zero. I wasn't sure I should write that. Because <laughs> there's a couple different ways to, to interpret that. No, but I think it's very true. And I think the what I, what I really appreciate about the book is the specificity with which you get into what this sounds like. So, you know, so much of what we talk about in, in sort of management leadership is kind of motherhood and apple pie, right? It's like, you know, don't be a jerk, show up on time, you know, whatever. I mean, the, but you get very specific about this is what a contributor, you know, an ordinary person who works hard looks like. And this is what one of these impact players looks like. And I really appreciate throughout the whole book, the distinctions that you make. So before we go there, let, why, why don't you tell us kind of your, a little bit about your journey and how you got to, how you got to write this book and, and what you're working on these days. Well, you know, in some ways, all of my work is uh, my post-oracle therapy and, you know, and my sense making <laughs> from having landed in this sea of amazing people. So Oracle early days was just full of all these really, really smart, capable people. And I think because early on, I was enamored with all of the people I worked with. It's kind of like you kind of got into this amazing school and now you're looking at all your classmates going, wow, wow. And so I felt that way. And, you know, I, I was fascinated that, you know, and all these smart, capable people, why were some people having an impact and finding influence where other people were spinning their wheels and struggling. And, you know, I spent a decade looking at, you know, how is it that really smart, capable leaders can end up shutting down the intelligence and capability of people around them. And so I've looked for a decade at what is it that a leader does that either amplifies the intelligence and capability of their team or diminishes and, and really honestly sucks the life out of their team. And to your point, it wasn't until really somebody came along and said, well, wait a minute, I get it that I'm supposed to be the multiplier to my team, but you can't multiply zero. And I'm like, yeah, you know, in, in a sea of smart, capable people, some people seem to play their intelligence better than others. You know, they they show up different. And so the essence of the research that I, I did was looking at, um, you know, comparing equally smart, capable, hardworking people. And like, why were some people stuck going through the motions while other people were building influence and delivering value and having this inordinate kind of impact inside of organizations. And, and I looked at that through the eyes of 170 managers who told us who their high impact contributors were, people I call impact players. And, and really, um, I'm a researcher who has come to my work from a you know, long tour of duty as a corporate executive. And I think it, it shapes what I look at and what I, I choose to research. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So one of the things that I find is a real point of intersection between your work and mine is um, literally page 13 of your book. And you talk about the context, right? So messy problems, unclear roles, unforeseen obstacles, moving targets, unrelenting demands. And I have to tell you, that's that's life in strategy today. <laughs> I mean, that's that kind of is the list that people are grappling with. And I, I love the way that you make a distinction between how a typical person looks at it and how these impact players look at it. And it made me think of um, uh, Carol Dweck's idea of growth mindsets. You know, this, this notion that rather than a setback or something that's ambiguous being a negative, you kind of look at it and you go, well, what could I learn out of that? <laughs> or how could I do something with that? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, I was looking at what are the differences in mindset and behavior? And as I was doing it, I realized it was that they handled these particular situations very differently. And they're all um, fraught with ambiguity and uncertainty. And I think that's been the premise of your work, which is, you know, the environment is so uncertain that you can't write off of a sustained competitive advantage. And we can't, as contributors, sort of ride off of um, our current strengths. We can't ride off of like formal job descriptions that really life inside of our organizations is far more fluid than any org chart or set of job descriptions would, would have us believe. And really the big differentiator between the impact players and the ordinary contributors is how they handle all of the messy problems. And I call them everyday problems because you find them every day and you find them everywhere. Like, you know, whether you work in finance or healthcare or hospitality, you know, you are real estate, you're going to deal with these same kinds of problems. And so it's really that kind of the messy bit that tends to the, the small messes that differentiate mm -hmm. have a lot of influence. Well, and I think that's so interesting because um, what I talk about is we have this, this presumption in strategy. And I think it comes from our inheritance, our intellectual inheritance, which is strategy really comes from industrial economics. Yeah. And industrial economics has two like overarching assumptions that the name makes clear. Firstly, that industries exist <laughs> and that we can study them and they have relatively straightforward boundaries. And secondly, that we can study them using economic lenses, which implies a hunger for equilibrium because yeah. economic models don't work if you can't eventually get to some kind of equilibrium. Well, strategy today, industry boundaries are blurry, you know, they compete with each other. I, I don't even talk about industries when I can avoid it because it, we made that up. You it's know? an arbitrary <laughs> distinction trying to just sort through a lot of data. Yeah. And the concept of equilibrium um, that people think is the normal state, right? Steady state, no change is normal. And yet, if you think about even two or three years of your own life, you know, there'll be changes large and small, cataclysmic and not so cataclysmic, but steady state is not an option. I did it for the book I um, did, Rookie Smarts, which came out a few years ago. So oh, this, yeah. mm -hmm. this data might be a little bit old, but I, I put some numbers together and I looked at, at the rate at which information is expanding, increasing, and the rate of information decay, meaning how fast what we know is no longer true. Um, you know, that, that things are changing, that if you work in a STEM-related industry, 
um, you know, and or a highly technology infused industry or company or part of the ecosystem, 15% of what we know today is likely going to even be relevant five years from now. So that was about three years ago that I was doing those calculations. So, you know, that probably has, and this isn't 50%, it's like one five, one five percent between 10 and 20% of what we know today. So when we think about what differentiates people who are having a big impact, it's the people who aren't just good at that knowledge game. They're good at the learning game. They're good at that messy white space game, and they're good at navigating ambiguity. So it's funny, Rita, that, you know, my research has like clearly shown that these impact players kind of walk through their work life wearing opportunity goggles. Like, how do I take these ambiguous situations fraught with uncertainty, chaos, things out of my control? And how do I find a way to add value in these situations, whereas others tend to see, ooh, messy problems, unclear roles. These are situations I'm going to stay out of, and I'll contribute when things are clearer, where I can be successful. So that's kind of easy for me to, to conclude based on the data and, and to write a book about that. But the real question is, how do you get comfortable navigating uncertainty? And I would love to get your guidance on this because you know that you've been spending years helping organizations learn how to, to navigate and continually to like recalibrate mm-hmm. in that environment. I'd love to hear your insights on like, how do, how do people get good at it? Well, so there's a couple of techniques I use. Um, one is uh, I wrote about it in my book, Discovery Driven Growth, mm-hmm. um, which basically started with observations back in the 90s, right? That all these really capable companies like Disney, I mean, I can't think of very many more better managed companies than Disney. And yet they opened up Euro Disney and it was for the first few years, it was a complete catastrophe. Um, and then I had another like, a bunch of other examples. And by the way, this is, stuff is still with us. Uh, just last year, we had Quibi, right? $2 billion on the thesis that millennials will watch 10-minute movies. And just, what, a couple of weeks ago, or last week even, we had Zillow finally figuring out that maybe flipping houses, you know, wasn't the same as programming an algorithm. Um, <laughs> and so the first thing I try to do is say, look, you know, relieve yourself of the burden of making predictions because the world is just too unpredictable. So once you take that burden off, now what you can do is say, okay, what you, you can't predict, but you can make assumptions and you can get much smarter about documenting and testing the assumptions that you make. And so I think the first the first part of that equation, don't worry about being right, is so hard for a lot of managers to deal with because they're used to dealing with the steady state period of a competitive advantage is, you know, it's keeping the wheels on the bus, it's operational excellence, it's did you make the quarter, it's, you know, all those things where you are in fact being rewarded for having the right answer. Whereas in high uncertainty situations, the best you can do is say, based on the data that I've got, these are the hypotheses that I can make. So I think the first thing is recognizing in high uncertainty prediction is not really right. And that changes how you think about failure, because, you know, failure in situations like that is not 
it's like if you made a prediction and it wasn't right in a conventional business, that's failure and that's bad. And we try to avoid that. And it causes a lot of risk averse behavior. On the other hand, if you say, well, actually, this is an experiment. <laughs> you know, we're going to see. I'll go back to Zillow. We're actually going to work with a guy who flips houses for a living and we're going to break down the economics of that. We're going to buy two houses, not a thousand. Um, and in that case, it's if it doesn't work out, if you say, oh, you know, this home flipping thing is not for us. Great. Take back the budget you allocated to that and go spend it on something more worthwhile. It's, it's failure to learn and it's failure to update your forecast. I remember, you know, being um, a manager at Oracle when we we're doubling in size and, you know, we're trying to forecast our revenue. We're trying to forecast our spending. And people are like, how do I do that? I'm like, well, you make the best, you know, statement you can given the us information you have at the time and you document that. And then when the situation changes, you update your forecast. So in that case, failure isn't getting your forecast wrong. Failure is failing to update your forecast and to know when to check to see if the situation has changed. And I just remember so many people were like, oh, that, that feels so uncomfortable to me. Yeah, absolutely. And yet when you look at firms that have figured this out, um, they they actually backed this up with processes. So for years, um, um, Infosys, uh, which has a huge growth, you know, you know, you know them well, um, huge growth trajectory, and they rebudgeted the entire company every quarter, like every quarter. I mean, you have to have great technology, but you also have to have the expectation that that's what we do. Because I talked to Sanjay Bro, that who used to be their head of strategy, and he said, look, in a high growth context. You don't want to wait three quarters before you find out you're on the wrong trajectory. You need to fix it now because everything you do multiplies, right? Um, it compounds, um, which I think is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So I had a question for you about the, so there's this dilemma that I've been wrestling with, which is appropriately summarized in Thomas uh, Chimero for Music's book, uh, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got these impact players and you've, you've done a great job of like, what's the profile? What are they like? How do you pick, pick up on them? How do you know them? Um, and yet, when I look at who gets promoted in many companies, it's often not those people. It's, it's you know, good politicians, sharp-elbowed political players, people who kind of figured out the game. Um, and you very explicitly say the high-impact people don't do the politics. They don't do that stuff. So that, to me, is a bit of a quandary. Like, what I think we want and need in our leaders is more of these impact player qualities. And yet, often what we get are these showboats. Yeah. So this is one of the big surprises for me in the research. So I'm going in knowing I'm studying you know, people who are considered to be high value contributing, high influence, high impact. Now, I've just come off of a decade of writing about researching, studying, teaching the difference between diminishing leaders and multiplying leaders. And so I know the space, like brilliant jerk is my, is my sweet spot. It's my turn. So I've been dealing with them. And trust me, like everyone thinks of me as the multipliers lady. But really, I spend a lot of my time looking at the dynamics of diminishing and Mm -hmm. toxic bosses Mm -hmm. and jerks. And um, so when I went, when I started this research, I was pretty convinced I was going to find these impact players who were prima donnas and divas and bullies. And it was shocking that in 170 of the impact players identified by managers in our pool, not a single one of them 
was someone you would categorize this way to the point where I went back through and looked at every research plan, every interview transcript. And I had my data scientist, Lauren, who misses nothing. She went back and we're like, we can't find any evidence that they're showboats. Now they are highly visible. They are people that everyone can identify. You know, if you ask managers, like, who are the impact players on your team? Oh, yeah. You know, it's Sunir, it's, you know, it's Sally, it's, it's Rita. It's like, these are the people we turn to in these clutch moments. So everyone knows who they are, mm-hmm. but yet they don't tend to, get, there was like a certain set of behaviors that they never engaged in. So we did kind of a frequency on a set of behaviors. And one of that was um, like politics and drama. And these are the behaviors that the impact players like never, never, almost never engage in, which we found was really interesting. Um, So they don't tend to be the prima donnas. However, here's the big caveat. Oh, the other thing I want to add to this, um, to your point about, um, you mentioned like the incompetent men rising. So like brings up some gender issues. Mm I was very cognizant of that as when I started it. And when we did the analysis on this pool of 170 top contributors, we found that pool evenly split between men and women. Mm -hmm. We found that pool well distributed on age. It tended to be a little young. There was probably just a slight um, over presence of young versus maybe more mature in career. And we found it was nicely distributed on ethnicity, race. And so we're cheering. We're like high-fiving, like, woo. And then as I stepped back, I realized, you know, the research we did was at nine companies that were all considered to be leading employers. So here's the list. Uh, Google, LinkedIn, Adobe, SAP, Salesforce, Splunk, Target, Stanford, Hospital System, Healthcare System, and NASA and the federal government. And I realized, oh, you know, th- that's the case in probably these companies that are very sort of progressive, work hard to create an inclusive environment. And I'm very aware that there might be people who um, are doing all the right things and going undernoticed. And there might be um, people who work in situations where it's like the loudest, get the attention, get the visible assignments. And so I think, I think our findings are progressive and directional, but they don't necessarily capture the realities in any one organization. And I think there are a lot of people who are creating value, but not being recognized at the level of their value creation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I believe that. So it would be really interesting if you had, if you had maybe this is your next book, a comparison sample of toxic companies. <laughs> you know? you know, it um, would be, and I, it's something I think that we might want to do is like, look at what that, how the profile changes when you go into kind of established toxic cultures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the reason I think it's so interesting is I, I bump up against this on the strategy side, right? Which is, you know, you have a strategy statement, maybe it's a decent one, maybe it's not, um, but all heads turn to look at what does the boss think? And people aren't bringing, you know, aren't um, 
Amy Edmondson and I talk about this a lot, which is they're not creating psychologically safe workspaces. And even though, you know, kind of everybody knows this is a really dumb idea, it's the boss's idea, so nobody's going to countermand it. And, 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 and. And so um, a lot of the, 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 the practices that an impact player would use kind of come to nothing because the culture and the politics of the organization is um, oriented in a way that doesn't, is not accepting of their contribution. Let me put it that way. So here's here's kind of my take on this. It comes both from what I've seen in the research, but a lot of it just from my own experience is I do believe these are the kinds of behaviors that are valued by leaders at all levels. So I think when people go into organizations and do the things that we find these impact players do, the quick summary would be to not just do their job, but when there's messy problems, do the job that needs to be done. When roles are unclear, instead of waiting for direction, you know, step up and lead and fill that void, but then be willing to step back. You know, when unforeseen obstacles appear, you know, it's tempting to escalate up. What the impact players do is they tend to, they look up for help, but they hold on to that ownership. You know, when um, targets are moving while other people are staying focused, they're being transient to use your term. They're, they're adjusting, they're changing and evolving more than they're staunchly defending something. Um, and then lastly, when the workloads are particularly heavy and other people are looking upward for help, they tend to make work light for the whole team. They're sort of easy to work with. They're low maintenance, which is why they could be unseen. So I very much believe those are the behaviors that are valued. But if we just do that and expect people to notice, I think we're naive. Mm-hmm. Regardless of our gender, like regardless of where we are sort of in an organization's power um, dynamics, there's a chapter, um, I think, I don't know, it might be chapter seven, on how to increase your impact. And in that, I offer some suggestions on how do you, how do you bubble up evidence of your impact? And the metaphor that I like, it's, it's kind of a strategy move, but it's more of a branding move. Um, so this is back Intel, back in the 90s when you know like laptops right back in the 80s like laptops are now proliferating and everyone's starting to get a laptop at IBM at Toshiba but the real power of the laptop was the Intel processor you know that microchip um, I think it was like the 486 processor but no one knows about it everyone's seeing the outward branding IBM's getting credit Toshiba's getting credit the Intel people are like hey like we're the ones creating the value here but nobody knows about it other than the nerds of the industry and our OEMs. And so they come up with this branding campaign, which is to put the Intel Inside logo. So it just was Intel Inside with just a little circle around it stamped on the outside of the the laptop casing. And it was their way of saying like, you know, we're in here doing hard work and we've got some great technology and we're bringing value to this product, but we just want you to know about it. And I think that's the metaphor for what we need to do to make sure that the showboats of the organization don't come in and claim credit for the people who are really bringing that that value. And, And so there's, I think, a set of things you can do that sort of gently but firmly bring attention and provide evidence to the contribution that you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, one of the things we always wrestle with, right? Um, and for example, I've done women's programming, 
and or or programming for you know underrepresented groups of other kinds. And one of the things we always wrestle with is the influence of the organization versus what a person themselves uh, can do. Um, and I think it's very interesting to say there are structural things you can do in the organization that actually make it more likely that you'll have an impact player, say, who really makes a contribution. Um, very relevant to um, you know Aaron May Meyer's work uh, at Netflix, uh, which was all about you know getting an unfair share of talent, you know, so increasing the talent density, but then creating the conditions in which that talent could kind of go for it. And I remember hearing a story, an anecdote once of, um, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg following Reed Hastings, their CEO around all day. And at the end of the day, uh, she said to him, I didn't see you make a single decision. He says, yes, that's a good day. Okay. Right? Um, and I think sometimes when it comes to leadership, we're in this very interesting moment to me where leaders um, like our traditional model of leadership is, you know, kind of from our lizard brains, right? Like if a saber-toothed tiger is coming, you follow the person that says, go this way. <laughs> you know? And that's kind of how we're still programmed. And so we confuse. And yeah, we tend to look for the animal that puffs up. Like, you know, my cat in danger is like, oh, yeah, that, looks, <laughs> yeah. that animal looks ferocious. I'll follow that leader. Exactly. Um, and yet, you know, in a knowledge economy where you're not facing clear and present information about just about anything. Um, you really need a, a whole different way of thinking about leadership. Um, and so Ortan's, our, our mutual friend, Ortan's legend, Teal has a great piece out in Harvard Business Review saying, leaders stop trying to be heroes. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's really hard for leaders to kind of get out of the way of some of these people who are able to make a, a, a big contribution. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know, it's kind of what I've spent a lot of time studying is how a leader who's just playing big you know, they're just using their own intelligence and know-how and skills and talent, how that can end up really suppressing mm -hmm. talent in others. In other words, like the heroic leader ends up building weak contributors around them. Mm -hmm. And so I've looked at like, what can a leader do to suppress some of their hero tendencies and be, you know, instead of the hero, be the hero maker on their team. But in many ways, impact players is looking at the contributor side of this because you know if if a, a, like a would-be multiplier leader they're trying very much to get out of hero mode and everything in this environment incents us to go back to hero mode in the short term and they're trying to get out of it but they've got people who are stuck in this contributor mindset which is I'm going to do my job I'm going to follow direction I'm going to take ownership. But then when things get tough, I'm going to just follow the kind of standard escalation procedures and escalate them. It's going to, in many ways, keep dragging the manager back into micromanager mode, back into hero kind of mode, rapid responder, rescuer sort of mode. And part of how I look at this book about impact players is, you know, this is for people who want to be able to contribute at their fullest and do work that has meaning and value and, you know, to be more impactful in our work, but it's also a promise to the leaders, which is if you help your team operate this way and build this mindset, it is your ticket out of micromanagement. Like you can now go do the leadership job that you want to do and the strategy job, which is like to help sort through all the ambiguity and uncertainty and figure out how to see around corners. Mm -hmm. 
but you can't do it unless you've got a team that knows to think this way and has permission to think this way. And I talk a lot about the permissionless organization as, as a sort of a form of, of this follow the talent, you know, break, break the organization into smaller teams, use technology to do the coordinative jobs, because this is another area where I think our practice is lagging way behind what's possible realistically. So in a lot of companies, um, the, the coordination work is done by quote, quote, middle managers. And the metaphor I always had is some guy with a clipboard wandering around getting status updates from people, right? Well, technology does that for us now. So we don't need to do that. And as we've learned over the last 18 months, we don't even need to be physically together to know what's going on, right? You can, there are techniques you can use to go know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a whole kind of set of assumptions around what managers do that is really being questioned. Because if you think about it, if you had, imagine a prototypical organization just full of these impact players, you would need very few layers of management. You would basically have them working in small teams, figuring stuff out and coordinating with other impact players on small teams. And, you know, wouldn't that be a cool way to organize? And I think some companies are indeed figuring this out. Yeah. And it's part of this, um, this leadership model that I saw demonstrated um, by these impact players is this very aggressive form of leadership, which is, you know, the first sign of a leadership vacuum, I'm going to step in. So like by a metaphor, this is me when I'm in a group and nobody can decide where we're going to go for dinner. Like, you know, they're the people who just like step in and say, okay, where do you want to go? Where, you know, and, and they take charge of those situations. It's this assertive kind of leadership, which is nobody appointed me a leader. Nobody gave me the authority. Nobody asked me to do it. In fact, I wasn't even really invited to do it. I'm going to step in and lead, but it's not this land grab of like, I'm now gunning for something. It's I'm going to fill this void mm. and I'm going to do it um, in service to a need. And then when my service is complete, like you can pat me on the back, thank me. And then I'm going to step back and follow my peers and others with the same level of energy and commitment that I led. So it's this step up, but then step back. It's this fluid form of leadership. And I think, I think this promises a lot more organizational agility. And, and, you know, clearly when people have permission to step up and lead in leaderless situations, it allows an organization to move faster, but I think it goes deeper than that in that, you know, in most organizations, it's the same people who are always leading, who are always tapped, like who get looked at when there's a group and nobody can figure out where to go for dinner. And those leaders become um, capacity limiters, bottlenecks, and they become exhausted. Like, mm -hmm. I'm tired of being in charge. Can I just, I'd love to be a participant, but only if someone else is really going to be in charge. And so what it does is it takes these like overtaxed leaders or the always leaders and these like underutilized others. And it starts to just balance this out. So it's reducing burnout mm -hmm. on two dimensions. One is the people who are spinning way too fast, shouldering way too much responsibility. They get their turn as a participant, but then those who are underutilized actually get their turn leading. And what I found, if I found, boy, anything from all the research I've done, it's that people come to work desperately wanting to contribute. 
when they contribute fully, it's exhilarating, not exhausting. And when people are underutilized, it's exhausting, Mm -hmm. which is so fascinating to me. And right now we're dealing with this burnout epidemic. Well, burnout, the great resignation, people, you know, existential reevaluation of what am I doing with my my few hours here on earth? Um, It's huge. It's huge. And think about the assumption, like, you know, we really should let the strategists kind of attack this problem because strategists tend to think in assumptions. And, you know, the assumption behind this is, oh, people are overtaxed. They're working too hard. Let's take our foot off the accelerator. Let's give people some R&R, some sabbaticals. I'm not opposed to a little bit of rest, mm-hmm. but it doesn't solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, burnout more often than not is a function of too little impact, not too much work. Mm-hmm. When we that, that is so cool. Um, I was talking to Jennifer Moss about this exact topic. And she said something very similar, which is that it's it's the lack of locus of control is like the, the heart of where burnout really starts. Mm-hmm. It's that lack of locus of control and impact. And what is needed for impact is locus of control. It's mm-hmm. a sense of, I can shape my reality, mm-hmm. that I'm not a victim of other people's decisions, that I have the ability to make reasonable decisions, to shape like when and how I can work at my best. And I think we would respond very differently to this great resignation is if we looked at it in lieu of, you know, working too hard or maybe in addition to, like look at it through this lens of impact and control. Mm -hmm. Like managers, like don't just give people more flexibility, like help people see how their work matters. I like that. I like that. And you mentioned specifically in the book, this atmosphere of appreciation, you know, caught you doing that right. <laughs> Let's have more of that. <laughs> right. You know, I think it's one of the um, byproducts of remote work that we haven't talked a lot about is that the chains of impact are getting broken where, you know, it used to be that you sent someone a report and then they were like, oh, hey, by the way, like, that was great. That was exactly what I needed. But all that by the way stuff is, is going by the way. And, and people are sending their work off going, did that fit the job? Like, was it good? Did it, was that what you needed? Cause we're so busy mm-hmm. that we forget to say, oh, by the way, that report you sent, it allowed us to make this decision. Mm-hmm. And now we can move faster into this because of that analysis you did. And being specific. Being specific. Like, oh, and you have a great few chapters, few pages in the book where you talk specifically about remote teams mm. and, and like opening up a meeting with instead of getting right into it, sort of saying, you know, how are you? What's your biggest worry right now? What are you concerned about? So that people have the opportunity for a little bit of, by the way. Yeah. That check in before diving in. Now, I see that you're, you're probably looking at some of these questions well, there's one question that is right up your alley from Mara, who wants to know uh, recommendations on how to identify other impact players in the interview process. Mm-hmm. And I want to connect that to this fabulous chart you have in, in your book on coachability of the impact player. And when I first read that chart, I, I got it completely wrong. I was like, but all those things on the left look really good to me. Like, why why would that be un- like not coachable? And your point, I think, is more subtle than that, which is there are things you can teach people, and then there are things that are more that's how the person is. And I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah. And the group that, um, so 
this was like the extra bonus research that I did. And, you know, as I'm doing the research and writing the book, I'm realizing, you know, it's naive to assume that all of the mindsets and behaviors of impact players are equally or easily learnable and coachable. So I come from a background of learning and development, and I happen to be an optimist by nature. So I, my default to um, learning is, oh, yeah, I can learn how to do that. You can learn how to do that. You know, some of this is like me and my vertical leap. Like it's, I can maybe take it from two inches to three inches, but it's not going to 30 inches, you know, like that one's like, I can work really hard at it and probably not make a lot of progress. And I think there's a lot of managers who are coaching their teams, but some of it's on things that people can't easily change. So we did this bonus research, which was to look for what are the more coachable and least coachable mindsets and behaviors. Now the literature in psychology is suspiciously light on this. I think psychologists are really conservative about deciding if something is malleable or not Mm -hmm. and very reluctant to do this. So I went out to a group that's less reluctant and I think more experienced and insightful is executive coaches. And Rita, you're part of the MG100 group. Um, So I uh, went out to the MG100 group and said, based on your experience coaching leaders around the world, have you worked with any of these behaviors or mindsets? And if so, what's your experience? Were people eat? And so based on their insight, um, I was kind of able to say, these are the ones that seem the least coachable, meaning managers, organizations, you know, talent acquisition teams hire for these. Mm-hmm. One of them is around our locus of control. Mm-hmm. Another one, one of the behaviors is around fun. And I just hate the thought that that's not easily coached, but my life experience tells me that's not actually easily coached. Some people just have a light orientation to things. They laugh at themselves easily. Um, I think it helps them be a little bit more. Yeah. Transient. Um, so there's and coach um, all the others. Interesting. So Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonas wrote this great book called Humor Seriously, mm-hmm. uh, honing in on just the kind of having fun aspect of it and came to a similar conclusion, which is that there are these different humor styles and that sometimes your humor style does not fit the situation that you find yourself in. So it's not actually the, the right the right um, antidote to that. Um, but what I but you had um, a companion set of interview questions around, uh, you know, tell me about a time something really weird came up at work and how did you manage it and, and so forth. So I think that's what Mara is really looking for is, you know, give me some keys to unlock that that early conversation. So there are two keys to that. Um, and Mara, sorry that I didn't get practical on that soon enough. So um, the first thing, as I say, is this model of impact players lends itself very well to behavioral-based interviewing. So each of these are something that you can put into a behavioral-based interviewing process. And in the book I offer, so it would be, if that was page 213, it would probably be 215 or something. There's a process. So I took the star situation, task, action, result, which is like the core of behavioral-based interviewing and just shifted it a bit and called it a SOAR, an S-O-A-R. So situation, the O is for orientation. So tell me about a time you were in a situation and roles were really unclear. How did you think about it? Mm -hmm. 
What did you see? Like what? And so you're looking for what is their orientation to this? How comfortable are they? Do they see this as an opportunity? Like, well, yeah, there was no one really in charge. So actually it was this opportunity for me to lead the group. Or are they saying like, well, no one's in charge. So how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do? So like, we're looking for their mindset and their orientation. And um, there's kind of an example of that. And if you go to the book's website, impactplayersbook.com, you'll see that full model. And you can just put that right into a behavioral-based interviewing framework. Here's the other thing. Um, I had some people test this out Um And what they found is like, if they were looking for one thing, it would be look for the person's orientation to ambiguity. And um, my colleague, Ben Putterman uh, was one of my test pilots on this. And he said, after three interviews, I noticed a pattern. And he said, the people um, who had some of these impact player traits, I watched their body language during the interview. When I asked him, like, talk to me about a time when you're dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity. And he said, some people were like holding back, leaning back. Like you could see for them, it was icky, mm-hmm. but for others, he said, oh, they're like excited about it. They're leaning forward. They're talking about it. They're like, they're energized by it. So I think if I had to look for one litmus, like if I had a litmus test for it, it would be their ability to talk comfortably and excitably about uncertainty and ambiguity. Mm-hmm. So this, um, I mean, I really, I really like the book. Um, you know, I sort of started it thinking, well, is it about fixing the people? You know, but but what what kind of sealed it for me was this: you can't multiply zero concept, which I thought was just great. Um, and I want to tie it to something Gary Hamill talks about, which is um, he calls it humanocracy. Which is, if you look around the world, right, we have these people who are YouTube stars running full businesses on things like Etsy, um, you know, making creative work that then other people can follow. In other words, there's this enormous amount of human ingenuity out there, you know, in the world. And then you take people who are these exact same people and you pop them in an organization and it's like, all that stuff just gets snuffed out. Um, And this to me is maybe this is a window or or a start to having that conversation around, you know, how do we stop building these dehumanizing organizations? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with this assumption and it's the assumption that the multipliers hold very differently than diminishing leaders, which is this assumption that people are smart and will figure it out. And if you start from this building block that the people around you are smart and will figure it out, you give them bigger problems to solve. You don't need to jump in heroically. They're going to get it across the finish line. Um, You can ask questions and let them find answers. I think the cousin assumption is that people start with this assumption that people want to do a good job and they want to have an impact. And I think if you add to that, like people are smart and capable And that people, like, they want to do work that matters and have an impact. Like, your job as a leader is to point them to the right problems. Now, here's where I think there's tension. And I think some of it is generational tension and expectations. Is like, when people come into organizations and say, well, I want to do my thing. Because, like, this is what I care about. But that's not really the mission of the organization. You get a lot of sort of organ rejection to that. And and that creativity gets squashed. Like 
if you're coming into an organization and you want to be entrusted to build and create, it's like your first obligation is to center yourself in the mission of the organization. And when you show that, like, I'm not here to push my agenda, I understand the strategic agenda for this organization. I think most managers will give you an incredible amount of latitude about where you play in that. But not everyone is entering into the workforce and into organizations first trying to understand where can I add value rather than let me bring my personal passion. Mm -hmm. I think there's some redirection that's needed for some people. And I think that's an important point. Um, you know, we, we, we hear so much of advice being given, especially to younger people, you know, follow your passion and all this stuff. And that's great, but you know, there, you, there's more to it than that, right? So when I, I work with um, the, a women's leadership program and one of the things we talk about is creating a vision where you've got a mix, right? You've got your economic engine, <laughs> like somebody's got to pay the bills. And of course, what you're passionate about. But more than that, you have to have what you are uniquely good at like on the planet. And it's the intersection of those three things that makes you a really valuable, that makes that vision valuable and makes you valuable to the organization. So just the passion part without the rest, not so much. And, and, and Rika, I think there's um, a ratio here, an overused ratio that, that is helpful. And that's this kind of mythical 80-20 rule that I don't know whether Google actually implemented that. I don't know how, if that's ever been measured. And, and what I'm referring to um, is that 80% of your job is to be on like your, you know, proper responsibilities. And then there's 20% carved out for you to do kind of things of interest to you. And I think that's a good ratio for people to keep in mind is that, and that 80% needs to come first. It's kind of like a dinner dessert conversation, <laughs> which I know that metaphor doesn't work for everyone because there are people like me, which is like, well, I'm going to start with dessert and then see if I have room for dinner. But it's, you know, when you first orient, like I'm going to put the bulk of my energy on what is important to the organization. It's amazing how fast people say, oh, that's something of interest to you. We've got room for you to do that. But I think we've, we need to tilt it towards that 80. Mm -hmm. One of my colleagues, uh, Adam Galinsky, talks about the importance of a leader being a superhero. Um, and what he means by that is the super part is the performance. You know, and then the heroic part is the vulnerability or the kryptonite or, you know, whatever it is that's the, the thing. Uh, but, he, but he makes a really crucial point. He says, you have to demonstrate super first. <laughs> you, you don't lead with vulnerability first, um, which I thought was an interesting point, which is... I think you have to kind of earn the right to do that. Absolutely. And you're an Adam's point on this is um, actually another dynamic. Like part of what I was doing in this research is looking for what are things that people are doing that become impediments to their own impact? Like in some ways, how are we thwarting our own efforts? And one of them is, you know, around vulnerability, which is like, let me just kind of put it all out there. It's like, you know what? Like, you might want to demonstrate some strength first before doing the kryptonite part of this. And <laughs> like, I like, I like working with people who are real and authentic and vulnerable, but there are some people who have so spun on that over rotated on that, that it's distracting. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a whole bigger conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And I think there's, um, how, how do I want to say this? We almost have a template, right? That sort of says all, all children are above average. <laughs> it's like Lake Wobegon, right? All the children are above average and, and, and everything. And we don't recognize that, you know, not all of us get this right all the time. And so that's where the whole feedback and coaching really comes in. And one of the things I really liked about the book is, is um, you have a, a so just sort of short rubric about how do you promote desired behavior and contain contrary behavior. And I just thought that was so powerful. So kind of name it, call it out, increase contact, make it learnable, stress test it and promote it. Um, like a real short one page summary of, so you see something you know, negative going on in your company. And that could be, you know, it could have to do with race. It could have to do with getting the job done. It could have to do with, you know, things that are not not helping other people have the impact that they could. And and being very proactive about, you know, promoting the stuff that's great and and not not tolerating or not 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 giving so much airspace to the stuff that's not so great. I thought mm-hmm. that was really practical. Well, and it's so easy for us to either be like promoting positive behaviors, but we also have to remember to stamp out the negative behaviors, like we have to squash, like quell those and then amplify the positive behaviors mm-hmm. to make room. Yeah. It's almost like um, a well-being model and that we have to like eliminate pathogens and, you know, viruses and like bacteria, like things that do harm, but we also have to introduce things that create health and to build a culture, you have to do the very same thing. Mm-hmm. There's a great story that gets told about the former CEO of Amgen and uh, like, like basically first day on the job gets his leadership team together and they're having this like conversation and it's all great about the company and the state. Of the and he says, okay, now I'm going to get to something I really want to get off my chest right now as we're working together. He said, I'm here because I'm a fantastic politician, but I'm not going to tolerate politics. I know what it looks like. And if I catch you doing any of that stuff, I'm going to call it out. And if you continue to do that stuff, you're not going to be part of my team anymore. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> but, you know, that level of clarity, like, like I know what you're doing. <laughs> like, and I'm not going to put up with it, right? One of my other favorite leaders who does that um, really well is Sue uh, Siegel, who was the president of Affymetrics, uh, you know, bioinformatics company, and then was it GE innovation, I believe, um, and, and in the venture world. And she's like, okay, here are kind of the rules for working with me. And Sue's really nice, but she's like, these are the rules. And like, one of the rules was we are going to do debate uh, in the fiery form. Like I want to hear, I win, but when we walk out of the room and we've made a decision, it's a hundred percent commitment to that. And if you can't do that, if you can't do both parts, which is argue fiercely, but then also defend a decision and move forward with it rather than snipe it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean, I don't, she, I don't think meant like defend it, mm-hmm. a bad decision, you know, forever. It's just that, you know, there's no sniping here. And if you're going to snipe and can't be an ambassador of a decision we make as a team, you can't work here. Right. And, and, we'll, end it, that. we'll end it that day. And, you know, that is one of the things I left this research process understanding. Because again, I talked to 170 leaders and I'm asking them like, tell me about these impact players on your team. And they know right away who they are. And then they have like, they're figuring out like, oh yeah, that's what they do. That's what they do. And then I ask them a fun question, which is what are the things that people do that make your job easy? Like, what is it that people do that you love? Yeah. You talk about making work light. I love that concept. Yeah. And then what do people do that really bugs you? 
And they, they tell me their list and then they come to realize, oh, I've never told anyone that. And so it's like managers have these secret rules in their head about like, I really appreciate it when people take responsibility, solve problems before they get there. I'll, I'll share with you the, um, the top of the list. People love on average here's a, doing things without being asked when, when people anticipate problems, have a plan to solve them, help their teammates do a little extra, be curious ask good questions. Number six, I love ask for feedback before I get a chance to offer it. It's like, and then there's a set of things like, oh, that really kind of um, gets their goat, so to speak. And they realize I've never told anyone the secret so, rules. Go through the second list too. because work think- with Okay. Here's the second list. Yeah. People probably <laughs> want that. Okay. In some ways, these are like surefire ways to aggregate leaders, bosses. Um, number one, give your boss problems without solutions. Now, I know um, like folks like Adam Grant, he's a big believer in like, oh, no, you've got to be able to give people problems without solutions or people won't speak up. I think I would interpret this. Give your boss. It, it bugs managers when you give your boss problems without attempting to find solutions. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's what you add because I, I'm the same, like like when I'm looking at inflection points or weak signals, like I want people to come forward with puzzlements that they don't really understand, but that's different than making no effort to figure out what the contours are. And I think it's probably a lot like the superhero kryptonite thing, which is people need to have first demonstrated a capability for solution finding, Mm -hmm. or at least know like, here's the puzzlement and maybe here are some questions we should be asking, like doing something to move it toward solution. Okay. That's number one. Number two, wait for your boss to tell you what to do. And this one's so obvious, but I feel like I want to shout it from the rooftops that here's what I know about bosses. They don't like being bossy. You know, even having studied some of the most diminishing bossy know-it-alls, most people don't like it and they resent it. And when people come to them and say, you know what, like I just took the liberty of solving this problem like nine times out of 10, that is going to um, be well received. And there's some ways to do it 10 out of 10 so that one never gets in trouble for doing that. But yeah, bosses like want you to be self-directing. Like, I don't think many people actually really want to manage people. I think people really do want to guide and direct and lead and coach. Okay. Number three, make your boss chase you down and remind you what to do. Yeah, that really, this is my number one. That Right? <laughs> I love it when I can do what the NASA people refer to as fire and forget, forget, which is not fire people and forget about them. It's fire off a request. And then you can forget about it because mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, Jacora is on it. It's as good as done. Right. <laughs> it's just like, it's done. Like I can cross it off my to-do list. Um, number four, uh, like credibility killers. Don't worry about the big picture. Just do your piece. Oh, there's one person at target. Um, Eileen, she's a set of Evan who worked for her. She, she said, he thinks about all the planes that I have in the air. Like he's thinking about what's on my radar, not just doing his thing. He's thinking, mm-hmm. Like, what am I juggling? What are all the pressures I'm under? Okay, number five, um, ask your boss about your next promotion or raise. That one's probably an ordering thing too, which is, it's not that there's no place for that, but that probably is dessert, not dinner. (laughs) 
six in long meandering emails. I could go on to all 15. I don't know that we have the time. Um, <laughs> well, you've given us a good place to start. And so one of the things that I think is very practical is, um, you know, this is, this is stuff a person could get feedback about, right? So you could go to peers or a trusted ally or someone in another company and say, do you observe me doing any of these things? Because if you do, that is something I should do something about. And I think for a lot of people, it's a lack of awareness. Um, like I do have, I have a colleague who, honest to God, every email he sends me is at least three pages of text. And I'm like, this should be a phone call. <laughs> like, we can talk about this. You don't have to like write war and peace. And what ends up happening, of course, is I mean to get back to his email. I get through the first paragraph and I'm like, oh, I've got it. It's going to take some time to think about this. So it goes into the email black hole, you know, and then three weeks later, I'll get this plaintive note. Did you see my note? And it just, it, it's this like never ending spiral. Um, and that's a fixable thing, you know? Um, so I have, I have a thing I call Rita's rules for emails, right? So yeah, oh, one, subject for, one, one subject per email. <laughs> no more text in an email that can be on one screen. <laughs> if you have five requests, send five emails. The thing I hate is where the thing is, I've done 80% of it and there's 20% I'm waiting on somebody for and it's still in my inbox because I can't get that least. If, if you just had one subject per email, I could get rid of them and, and jump them off. Uh, meaningful subject line right? So tell me, I need advice from Liz about this contract I'm about to sign on Tuesday. Don't tell me Tuesday contract. Like, because then I have to open the damn thing to know if it's significant, important, whatever. And so, you know, if you just put, I add on to that one. Sure. And if the thread changes, change the subject. (laughs) That's another one. And then don't BCC every, you know, don't see, you know, don't CC everybody just because, you know, you want to be able to say in some meeting three months from now, well, I told you about that. <laughs> you know, that's not telling people about that. That's, that's, that's CYA. <laughs> and there's an overarching principle to this um, that I try to use when I send email. And I, I think it, it covers so many of Rita's things is when you send an email to someone, like at, tell yourself, or ask yourself, what do I need to do to make it easy for this person to respond to me? Mm-hmm. Or how do I make it easy for someone to say yes to my request? And like, if you do that, it's like easy for someone to respond. Oh, a clear subject line, short enough that they can read it. But like, once it gets long, it's not easy to respond because I'm like, oh, well, clearly this is complicated. I'm going to have to put a lot of extra cycles into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a real art form to doing this. Well, we have blown through this hour. Wow, that was so, so interesting. There's so many more questions I wanted to ask you, including kind of how do we just, it sounds to me like impact player life. It's just a better life at work than what a lot of people have. And so I'd love to kind of think about how do we, how do we scale this and get the word out? So where do people learn more? And uh, then maybe you and I just to be continued. To be continued. I love that. Um, you can learn more at impactplayersbook.com. There's some tools and resources there. But I really want to echo what you said. You know, I went in looking for like, what are people doing that is delivering value into organizations and having impact? But the real message is this is about what we get when we do work that is impactful. And, you know, it's not about working harder. It's, you know, you don't have to be smarter, more capable or harder, you know, work harder. It's about pointing yourself where you could have the biggest impact. And when you do work is 
I'm just going to use the word that I think is accurate, joyful. Mm-hmm. Like it's a joyful way of working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I want is like, how do we create environments where people can contribute fully and do work that's exhilarating and joyful and fun? Yeah. I think that's the reward. I love that. I love that. Well, Liz Wiseman, it has been a pleasure and uh, I will look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Rita, thank you for inviting me and thank you for all the comments here from people. I've been kind of trying to keep my eye on them. I'll send them to you. Yeah. We, if we can't get to them in, in the session, we will, we'll respond afterwards. Okay. Fantastic.